Welcome to the Pathways Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Spiro, and today we're going to be talking about metacognition and what that means. And our guests are Julie Dangraman Stanton. She's an associate professor in the Department of Cellular Biology at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. And her co-author, Amanda Sebesta, a postdoctoral research fellow at St. Louis University in St. Louis, Missouri, who is in the lab of Elena Bracebeth. Welcome, ladies. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, indeed. So let's start with the basic uh, definition of metacognition. If you take the word apart, it seems to mean self-awareness and the act of acquiring knowledge. So the self-awareness of one's own learning. Um, but what is it? It's more than that. How would you, would you define it? Yes. So we define metacognition as awareness and control of thinking for learning. But honestly, I think metacognition is best understood by examples. So if we take the first part of metacognition, the awareness you referred to, this is known as metacognitive knowledge. And so a student who has well-developed metacognitive knowledge would be someone who can distinguish what they do and don't know about a subject. And this allows them to be more effective and efficient in their studying. In contrast, if we are thinking about a student who has not yet developed metacognitive knowledge, this student might recognize terms that relate to a subject and then assume that they know it very well. And that might be the case, but it will affect whether or not they continue studying. So then if we think about the second part of metacognition, which is control, which we refer to as metacognitive regulation, an example of that would be a student with well-developed metacognitive regulation. They can select strategies for learning, let's say study strategies for an exam that are appropriate for that particular exam. And then they can adjust those strategies based on outcome. So if they do poorly, they might tell themselves or think to themselves, oh, this strategy worked well, this one didn't, I will keep this one, I will not use that one anymore, and I'll seek something new that might fill a need I have in my learning. But in contrast, if a student is still developing their metacognitive regulation, they might do poorly on an exam and say, well, I'll double the time. And while more time could be beneficial, this student might actually do better if they reconsidered how they were spending the time. And so that would be a student who's still developing metacognitive regulation. And so lastly, I'd just add that metacognition also involves what we know about strategies for learning and how, when, and why you might use a particular strategy. Dr. Sebesta, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, what Julie said is wonderful. Um, the phrase that I like to think of when I think about metacognition is learning how to learn. So that really encompasses knowing what's out there that we can use to help us learn like different kinds of strategies and then knowing when to use them, why to use them, how to use them. And also incorporating that feedback that we give to ourselves about is my approach really working? And if it's not, what can I do to change it? When I was reading through your paper, I kind of had this moment of self-reflection and I really felt like I just don't really think about these things and I'm not sure that the average person does and I'm pretty sure college students and high, and high school students too they 
are just learning how to learn. And so I think it's really interesting that these kinds of concepts exist. I mean, this, this thinking about learning, thinking about being self-aware of how you learn, I feel like it's something that honestly, we should be way more aware of from a much earlier age. I mean, I sometimes, I, I read through this and I'm like, I don't know how to learn anything. I feel, I felt stupid <laughs> reading the paper because I just, I felt like I just had, I've missed so many opportunities to learn better. I wouldn't feel bad about that at all because that's the experience for a lot of us, I'd say. I know for me personally, it was only my second semester of my third year I had originally had a different major and then switched to biology halfway through my college studies. It was during that third year, my second semester, I finally figured out how to study. <laughs> Even though I had had plenty of courses and all sorts of different contexts, to have the opportunity to think, am I doing the best approach to learn this material? But it takes sometimes a lot. And that was really just organic for me to come to that conclusion, but everyone's on a different path for that, essentially, is what I'd say. Dr. Sebesta, do you want to go through the uh, three recommendations that you make in the paper about how to improve your metacognition skills? Yes. So one of the ways in which we recommend students to improve their metacognition is to use more effective learning strategies. And there are three of those that we recommend. There is self-testing, spacing of studying, and interleaving of studying. When it comes to self-testing, we're essentially practicing recalling information on our own without looking up the answer. So this is a way to help us really see how well we know something and to help us retain information better. And how that works is that when you have a question that you're trying to answer and you're trying to pull the answer from your mind, you're seeing how well that connection has been made between the question prompt and the answer. And the more you test, the more that connection is made and that's what gets stored as a memory for us. And then as you self-test, that memory is pulled together with the question and the answer. So then it's making that information more easily recalled and pulled, that way we can use it to answer questions. Then for spacing, this is where we can review the same content periodically. So instead of putting it all into just one session, which we call massing our studying or cramming, we spread it out over multiple sessions. And then the power of spacing really comes from giving ourselves a little time after we have first studied that material. Let's say it's two to three days later that you revisit that same material. You can see how much you remember, which involves some self-testing in a way as well. And you can also help to consolidate that information from a previous study session. So then essentially you're giving yourself more opportunities to think about the material rather than just that one opportunity that you would get from massing or cramming. Then massing is alluring because it seems that we're gonna just drill the information into our heads all in one go. And there is data showing that massing can actually help us with short-term gains so we can perform well immediately. But if we were to be asked about that same information much later on, we wouldn't be able to remember it as well. That's where the power of spacing comes in, is that because we've given ourselves that time to process that information and to process it more than once, 
we're able to really get down those memories of the information. That way we can actually access them later on. I mean, I really, that was my strategy through the entirety of college, cramming just information into my brain, remembering it long enough to get through the exam. Um, you know, and in a perfect world, what you're saying is being able to space that out and go back and revisit the material a few days later, a few weeks later, and still have the same retention of it. it that feels, it feels like I said, in a perfect world, but it feels like a challenge for the, your average student. Oh, it certainly is from my personal experience as well. <laughs> when it comes to timing of studying, there's a lot going on as a student, right? It's not just taking one class, we're taking multiple classes. We also have different kinds of activities outside of what we're learning that we're doing. What I would recommend for instructors especially is to help reframe to students how they use their time. So when it comes to timing for using different strategies and especially spacing one studying, it may seem like a lot of upfront work where students are having to intentionally plan how they're going to study. They have to figure out when am I going to revisit these concepts that I've learned from the previous class and how frequently am I going to do it? What that allows students to do is to give them a little bit more control and then actually better gauge how much time they should spend on different concepts. Whereas with massing, it's all in one go. And let's say, again, I've got concept A down really well, but concept B I'm struggling with. So I need to give myself more time to learn concept B, but because it's the night before the exam, I don't really have time to do as much as I could potentially to help myself understand concept B. So as instructors, we can help students reframe how they use their time, that it's easy to just push it off. But if you do the work up front to help plan how you're going to study, how frequently, how you're going to space it out, then that gives you a little bit more, I'd say, flexibility to you know, do a little bit at a time instead of pushing it all at the end. And then that gives yourself time to actually go back to things that you need to spend more time with. And then you're, you had a third uh, recommendation, which was interleaving, which I don't really understand. Oh, of course, I can explain. Now, interleaving is somewhat like spacing because you are periodically coming back to a certain concept, but the difference is that we're taking different concepts together and we're switching out when we study them. So instead of studying something from one category all at once, we then alternate with examples from different categories. So a great example that I hope appeals to at least some listeners is if you are a birder and if you're trying to learn how to identify different bird species. So instead of studying finches altogether or all sparrows or all cardinals or all sorts of cardinals, you may be taking an example of a finch, then a cardinal, then a sparrow, maybe two sparrows and then a cardinal. And what that does much like spacing, it helps us to give us some time before we're thinking about material again, and then allows us to see how well we know it. 
But then it also helps us to identify similarities and differences across those categories. That way we're able to better recognize those similarities and differences with future examples. I remember as a college student, I didn't remember, I, I don't remember a professor or an instructor or a TA, anyone ever really giving us any um, suggestions or tips on how to learn. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, maybe things are different now. I haven't been in a college classroom in many years, but um or it could also be the type of college that I went to. I went to a large public university. Maybe a small teaching college would have a different approach. However, um, I'm just wondering if there are ways that the coursework itself can put these recommendations in place already so that you're sort of guiding the student to do these things anyway. You're teaching them the, these learning habits anyway. Absolutely. There are two major ways that instructors can incorporate how to use these effective strategies and to be more metacognitive. And I will add to that, as you pointed out, there actually have been shifts towards focusing on how to help students study and how to be more metacognitive. So that is a very welcome change that we have. And as for the these two major ways that instructors can incorporate how to be metacognitive and to use effective strategies. They can reserve class time to talk with students about effective strategies and how to be metacognitive and you know, how to reflect on their study approaches and how to change them, how to use them. And then we can also incorporate these strategies directly into teaching and assessment practices. So how we're evaluating what our students know and can do. So for the first, where we are reserving this time in the course for instructors to talk about strategies with students and being metacognitive, that can actually be a specific goal of the course. Instead of just focusing on content, we can also focus on ways that are helpful for us to learn that content. And that's something that uh, Julie and I have talked about before, too, is that these skills, we can talk about them broadly, but it's best that they're done in a specific context or a specific setting, because then it becomes much more concrete for students to understand. So what an instructor can do is develop activities then that allow students to practice these effective strategies and be reflective to make plans, monitor their progress, and then at the end, evaluate how well those approaches worked for them. And these activities can be in-class discussions about how students have studied in the past, for example, and how they think that they might have to change their habits for this particular course. And then they can also go through an introduction to effective learning strategies and what it means to evaluate our approaches to monitor our progress. So you're saying that an instructor should actually use some of their class time to talk about these topics, to talk about learning the content, not just the content, because college classes are content, content, content. Like, you know, yes. where are you going to find the time to talk about learning the content? I mean, I think that's, it's interesting. It's a, it's an ask, you know, do you think people will do it? I think so. Buy-in is a challenge because we are focused on making sure students know what they need to know 
to continue their curriculum, to graduate with a major, and to continue on with whatever path they choose afterwards. Something that Julie and I have come across as discussions in our research community is to not just march through the content, but to really break it down and spend time with it because it's really about helping the students learn this information. So if we're able to slow down and not try to just push through all this, this material all in one heavy go, we can actually help students think about the content more meaningfully and how they're learning it meaningfully as well. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be 10 class sessions, like where all you talk about is how to study and how to be metacognitive. It can be a 10 minute conversation for a few different classes and it can be spread out over the timeline of the course because it's important to touch base with students throughout their learning, not just at one point. Mm -hmm. You could do it that way, but if we really wanna help students, it's helpful to have these conversations every so often, just to check in with them and show that that, that, that is important for them. We'll return to the Pathways podcast after these brief announcements. Here's what's happening this month at the American Society for Cell Biology. Do you love being a member of ASCB? Of course you do. Invite your colleagues and friends to join you with our Member Get a Member promotion and get rewarded. Go to ASCB.org forward slash membership for all the details. Our annual meeting, Cell Bio Virtual 2021, will be here before you know it. And the abstract submission portal is now open. Don't miss important deadlines for registration or even the chance to apply for special attendance or childcare grants. Find out everything you need to know about our second online meeting at ASCB.org forward slash CellBio2021. And is it time to update your resume or CV? A free review of your CV, resume, or cover letter is just one of the many benefits of membership in the American Society for Cell Biology. Look under the Career Development tab on our website for more information. That's all for now. Let's get back to the show. So one of the main features of your paper is this guideline. And the guideline is a separate tool and it's got its little nodes and each node you can click on and then go further into that topic with more evidence-based research on that topic. Tell me a little bit more about how that was developed and how you envision people using that tool. Yeah, so we had the opportunity to have an interdisciplinary collaboration. Amanda and I work with Dr. John Dunlosky, who is an expert in cognitive science and one of his specialty areas is metacognition. And so we met um, on a regular basis for about nine months to create this guide. And I'll just share one of the things that John brought to our attention early on is he said, we have to have something in this guide that an educator could go to and click on and implement immediately in their classroom, regardless of the subject and without much time in terms of preparation. And so when we think about it now, that's one of the features we invite educators to start in on is that button or node that is for four strategies to implement in any course. Um, we were also invited as part of this process, not just to review the literature and summarize some of the key findings, but to translate them into really actionable items that a 
professor or other educator could take um, in order to foster metacognition. And so there's a checklist that folks can download from the guide and think about including those recommendations into their course. What we love about this as researchers is that every recommendation we make is backed by evidence in the literature. And so if an instructor finds, wow, I'm really interested to learn more about this area, then they can click on that part of the guide to get a summary of some key papers in that area. And if they're even more intrigued, they can click and go to the original research themselves. But that's how we imagine um, folks might enter into using this guide. And again, it was a collaboration amongst the three of us through a lot of discussion and conversation over a long period of time. So it's not necessarily something that you have to go through in order, even though it does sort of look a little bit like a workflow. Um, it's something that you can, it has the parts of it are standalone. That's right. We hope that each part of the guide can be standalone. Um, one part that I'll point to is there is a section that includes definitions. So if someone finds that they're encountering terms they're not familiar with within the guide, they could click on that definitions node and just get that definition to proceed. But we've also worked, as you said, to make each part standalone so that things are defined as they're brought up within the guide. And even though this paper is published in CBE Life Sciences Education, it looks to me like all of this could be applicable to any educator in any field. That's right. I think that it would most easily translate to any science course. So outside of cell biology or biology, physics, chemistry, um, other STEM disciplines. But I do think that most of the recommendations also work well outside of STEM. And thankfully, all the papers in LSE are open access. So anybody can read them, even a high school educator, even me. That's right. That's right. The other thing that you mentioned is that you don't have a lot of data. Well, you don't have data on the use of this guide. So is that, am I understanding that correctly? That you need to gather data on the use of this, these particular recommendations in this guide. And so you're going to gather feedback. Is that correct? Well, I mean, one of the things in our field is just that, you know, studying metacognition is, a little bit challenging because we're trying to measure something that is a thought inside someone's head, which might not be put into words. And so while our field of metacognition researchers have been working for many years to try to understand metacognition, I think we wanted to end our paper with an invitation to educators to consider being a part of the, the data gathering process so that we can learn more about these things that have been established through, for example, laboratory studies, how they might be translated to a real classroom and how we might collect data to refine those approaches so they're better suited when you're actually an instructor in front of a class with real students. So um, Amanda might like to talk a little bit more about how we might do that with a question that might arise from what we already know from the literature. Yeah, how would you collect the data from these people? Is it anecdotally or, or what way will you use? Certainly. So the best way that we could do this kind of research is through an intervention. And this intervention would just be a specific set of activities that would be done in the class. Is it the instructor having these conversations with students about how they're studying, how they're reflecting on their learning approaches? Could also be 
instruction about particular strategies and whether that leads to students using those strategies more and even having higher performance because they've used those strategies more frequently. It's really a good plan to pull data from both instructors about their experience with applying that part of a, pro a kind of approach and from the students because ultimately we're trying to help the students, right? So we want to have their feedback on how these activities are going for them. That way we can better be attuned to what they need because all students are different. So with that in mind, I'll throw in the caveat that we are careful to consider what context we're working in because practicing these skills and strategies are very context dependent in a way because you may use some strategies for biology, but different strategies for chemistry versus history versus learning about art, right? So if we are able to get students' experience and their data about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and how those outcomes are affected by what they're doing, then we can get a better sense of whether these approaches are actually working. And what's a measure of success with these recommendations? Traditionally, we often use grades. So it could be grades on exams, it could be course grades, and let's say it's a broader scale study, we could even look at students' grade point average, their GPA. But let's say we don't wanna just focus on the performance aspect, because there's a lot that goes into performance, right? It's not just what students do, it's their motivation, their background knowledge, a whole bunch of other variables. We can ask students specifically about how the intervention is affecting what they're doing. And do they actually perceive that they're benefiting from it? Now, there are also some times where students are benefiting, but they don't perceive it. So we haven't figured out how to convince students to use certain approaches, even though their own data shows that it is effective. That's an open research question. So you asked about um, how we know we're successful. And as Amanda pointed out, we often look at performance or achievement. But as a community, we're starting to ask very different questions. So we might look at how does this affect a student's ability to solve a problem or reason to get to an answer? And so we're now thinking about other ways of measuring learning besides performance um, that might reveal even more about how metacognition might be working to benefit our students. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between individual metacognition and social metacognition and the dreaded group project. Well, this is a great question. Um, social metacognition is a newer area of research, and whereas individual metacognition is really focused on how a person and their thoughts and their actions affect their learning, in social metacognition, we're really thinking about, let's say, the three of us working in a small group. How does what you say affect my understanding of my own knowledge, and how might what I say um, influence you to recognize something new that maybe you didn't understand before and now you do, or something you thought you understood, but you realize maybe you didn't. And so one of the things we know is that there's this big push in the life sciences to include more group work. And I think part of the reason students dread it, at least historically, is because they're not given a lot of direction about what role they should play and how they could be really effective in that setting. 
And so when it comes to social metacognition, we know that students can be trained or invited, if you will, to ask each other certain questions while they're working together, which can cause each person to stimulate metacognition in one another. And um, what I like about this is that some of these questions are very simple. So if we just train students and say, you know, every so often, pause your group and say, do you understand what I just said? What part of it makes sense? What part of it doesn't make sense? Encouraging people to monitor how well they're understanding. And we've also seen that, again, simple questions students can ask one another in groups leads to them being more successful at problem solving. So if we're working together on a problem, we come to a solution and you say to me, this solution is great, but I'm not sure if we really resolved this last part that the instructor wanted us to attend to. And by you just opening the conversation to look at that piece, as a group, we can start to see how could we improve it. And so what we think is that by just helping students to better understand the types of questions and statements they can make when they work together, they'll be able to stimulate metacognition one another, get one another thinking. This is a great place to look at metacognition because our thoughts have to be put into words for us to work together. So the unseen sort of becomes seen in, in the group setting. And we're really excited to learn more about how we could capitalize on this and help students make more use of their time in groups. I know I would have loved to have had, you know, a, a list of, questions to ask other group members just to make sure that we were all not only covering the material, you know, answering the questions that the project needed to answer, and also not, you know, the, the, the problem with group pro projects is that it often falls on one person to do the whole thing. That's, that's a big, the big challenge in group projects. So it may have prevented that from happening. And then once you get out of college, you realize your entire life is just one big group project. Every job you ever have is just going to be one big group project going on forever. I, I mean, those are, those are great ideas. I'd love to see what kind of questions you would, you would ask, or if the instructors would have to come up with those questions th themselves and, and build that into the group project outline. So there are some general questions we list in the guide that should work for any group project. Simple questions such as, if this is our goal, have we really met the goal through this um, particular exercise or whatever the work that has been done? Um, so that I think is important. Um, Another piece I'll just offer is that some of our recent data is suggesting that when students work in groups, that sometimes being silent is where we find um, that students are putting together ideas that allow them to be more successful. So as an instructor, sometimes when students are doing group work, we get a little afraid when it's quiet in the room, but we actually now have data that suggests that when students are quiet, they may be working through things and their metacognition may be simulated so that when they do speak, they're actually being more thoughtful about it and maybe able to better reason when it comes to problem solving. So that's something exciting that we found recently because there is this notion that a great group will be talking the entire time and some of our data suggests, well, that could be true, but sometimes we also see these quieter groups. And so I think part of what we're learning is there's some ideas we have about what makes a group great 
that maybe um, is true some of the time, uh, but not all of the time. And the last example I'll share, because I think it's so interesting, is we've done studies where students will say an idea that's wrong and another student doesn't want to correct them. So they'll sort of say the correct idea without saying you're wrong. And this will go on for minutes at a time. We'll see other groups where a student will say something wrong and their peer will immediately correct them and say, for example, you could say to me right now, no, Julie, that's not what I mean. And when that happens, we find that they're able to more effectively get to the solution rather than sort of dancing around the idea that's wrong. And so the reason I think that's interesting is because culturally we are trained not to confront people. So if we're going to say that this is something that's beneficial in problem solving, we're going to have to train students or help them understand what's the benefit of being upfront that somebody's statement is wrong and how that can serve the group going forward, because that's not traditionally what we're taught to do in a lot of settings. So that is another piece I wanted to share because it is a little different than the cultural norm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, you're, you're going into personalities and like you said, culture, uh, social norms, what's expected of men versus women, all kinds of things. Very interesting. I have another question. Why is this specific to biology? Why are you doing this specifically in the context of biology? Are other people doing this in the, you know, are the physics educators out there doing this as well? They are. That's a great question. So um, what we know is that it's often helpful to learn about metacognition within a particular area because then um, the skills that you develop are really specific and they fit with the context. So I'll offer an analogy. If you were teaching me how to cook and you said, today we're going to learn about sauteing and this is what sauteing is used for, but you didn't show me how to use it, let's say when it comes to vegetables like mushrooms and spinach, um, maybe when I go to saute mushrooms, I won't really know how to do it. I'll kind of have a memory of what you told me. Um, but also we want to show students within a discipline, within an area like biology, when and why would you use a certain study strategy? So if you go back to the cooking analogy, if I don't know when and why to use sauteing, maybe I'll start sauteing cake batter with disastrous results. So we have that happen with students where they learn a strategy and they want to apply it everywhere to every course. Um, but sometimes it's not appropriate um, and that context really matters. There's a specific time and place for a strategy. And so that's why we find it's really beneficial to learn about metacognition within a particular subject area like biology. What are you going to do next? You've got this, this paper's out, this guide's out. What are you going to do next? Well, for my research group, we are delighted because we've long wanted to study metacognitive development in college students. Most of the work has been done in K through 12 settings. In order to do that, you have to do a longitudinal study. That's the gold standard where you follow a student from the start of college, collect data from them at multiple time points across all four or five years, whatever the case may be. That's a very expensive and time-consuming study, but we do have NSF funding now to follow a group of students from a number of different institutions over four to five years of their college career and really find out what does that developmental trajectory look like? And the reason why I'm so excited about this opportunity is because if we can see how metacognition really develops for young adults, 
then we can take those lessons and help first-year students develop metacognition much, much earlier, which we know will bring them success in learning and achievement and problem solving. So this is a really exciting time for the lab because we're going to get to uncover um, some of those developmental milestones and see how we might, as instructors, um, help students with those earlier on. How about you, Dr. Sebesta? What are you going to be doing with this work? Yes. So in the lab, we are really focused on this question of context about how maybe certain strategies are more effective in certain courses with these particular teaching approaches compared to courses that might cover different content. Maybe they go over that content in different levels of or depth and different teaching practices. So we're asking students, for example, what they've done in their previous science courses and then what they're doing now to see if, we've if we can detect any changes in how they're studying based on what we know we're asking of students to do for the course, for their learning. And that work is being carried out by a graduate student in the lab, uh, Christine Simmons. And I'm really excited to see what uh, we find from that because we've been wondering about this context question for quite some time now. Is there anything else that you think people ought to know about your paper, about the guide, about metacognition in general? It seems like this is um, something that would have really, actually, once people figure out what you're talking about, they would have very broad appeal to a lot of different topics. Yes. So I would say one of the things I always think about with metacognition is that this is a process students engage in when something is both challenging and important to them. And so there's some cases where those criteria are not met. So for example, if a student is earning a grade they're really happy with in a course, they're not really going to be pushed to reflect on how they're learning and adjust that. So as it turns out, COVID, the pandemic, was actually a time where a lot of students engaged in metacognition because they were all of a sudden learning in primarily online settings, often their assessment changed. So for example, they were used to in-classroom exams, all of a sudden they're taking um, online exams that are open book, open resource. And what we found from data we collected over the pandemic is that this sort of acted like a metacognitive transition for some students because they were presented with a novel challenge. So their coursework was important to them and now they were being asked to do things they had never done before. And that caused them to pause and say, okay, I'm not used to this way of learning. So maybe I better think about what is the best way to do it. As opposed to if we would have had a regular year, students might have continued doing the things that brought them success in the past. And that's really something we see with metacognition. When, when students are successful by whatever their de definition of success is, um, they're not necessarily going to be motivated to engage in metacognition. So if we want to think about its development or students' use of it, we do have to think about, does the learning task rise to be both challenging and important? To add to what Julie was saying, I appreciate how metacognition can help us stay curious about what we're doing. And it helps us to really put the brakes on what we're doing and take a moment to reflect what is it that I'm working toward and how am I getting there? And most importantly, is what I'm doing actually getting me there? And if not, how can I change it? 
So, you know, such a challenge, like switching how we learn, like during the pandemic really helps to keep us from just simply going through the motions of some activity, like how we study. And it helps us figure out ways to improve what we're doing. That way we can better reach our goals, whatever those goals may be. Those actually sound like questions that everybody should be asking themselves every day. And that sounds like a good place to wrap this up. Thank you both. So for sharing your ideas about your paper and explaining metacognition to me. Uh, I obviously have some learning deficits and I need to figure out. So this was really educational and interesting for me. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about our work. And I would offer that you're actually quite metacognitive because you were able to define what you did and didn't know about metacognition. So that is wonderful. The Pathways Podcast is a production of the American Society for Cell Biology. Thanks for listening.